he sets up um, this old old church metaphor, the baited Leviathan metaphor, mm-hmm. which the baited Leviathan metaphor is that uh, God is going to catch Satan. Satan thinks that he's going to catch a fish. And so what God does is he puts this little worm of a man on the divinity of a hook. And then Satan goes and chomps on this, what he thinks is a worm of a man, gets caught on the divinity of, of God, of life himself. So he, here he is in the eating, he dies. So out of the eater came something to eat. When out of death comes Jesus' life, his, his bread, his body and blood given for us. Um, out of the strong comes something sweet. It's the same thing again. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Now. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, sponsored by Logos Bible Software, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. Today, we have Todd Haynes on. He's going to be helping us with a book club episode on a book he wrote, Martin Luther and the Rule of Faith, Reading God's Word for God's People, and it's published by our good friends at IVP Academic. So I'll start this conversation here in a moment. It's also in the new explorations in theology series with IVP academics. So uh, go to our show notes, find the link to IVP, click that, get this book for yourself um, or someone, you know, it's coming up, uh, maybe a stocking stuffer or something like that coming up to the holiday season. And then um, also there's a link to find the closest reformed or confessional churches near your area. So click that link and the closest reformed denominations, PCA, URC, OPC, among many others will pop up and you can uh, find the closest church near you to call home. Uh, also just some basic information on how to communicate with Peter or myself. Um, we're on Twitter and Instagram at guilt, grace pod at both those platforms, the same handle guilt, grace pod at gmail.com. If you're old school and we want to email us, we still got the email. Uh, if you want to check us out on YouTube and that's your jam on how you want to listen to podcasts, we got you there. These, these, uh, episodes are automatically recorded with video. So go to YouTube, subscribe to us. You could actually on YouTube, find the playlist button and find these uh, recordings very helpfully organized based on book club episodes or seasonal episodes. And then um, our bridge builders can't thank them enough. Logos Bible software, our main sponsor. Thank you. And then we have some of our other bridge builder sponsors. You'll hear some words from them halfway through our show as well. So I will let Peter further introduce Todd Haynes today. Yep, we have Dr. Todd Haynes, and he is an academic editor at Lexham Press, where he launched and edits the Christian Essential series, Lexham Ministry Guides, and a children's catechism series, Fat Cat Books. He was previously the assistant project editor of the Reformation Commentary on Scripture, and is the co-editor of the Acts volume in that series. And it's a pleasure having you on our show, Dr. Haynes. Thanks. Thanks for having me. (laughs) 
Oh, we God. were talking yeah. about this pre-show, and I, I have to ask, because I'm, I'm betting some people wondered too, because I said Lexham Press is in your uh, in your bio because you work for them, but you wrote a book for IVP Academics. What's what's it like working for one and then writing for another? <laughs> yeah, it. I thought it would be stranger than it is. Okay. It's not so bad. It was something <laughs> I just did at home by my, myself, and then when I was getting emails and updates, it's sort of a reminder of the same process that I do and pay, paying attention to some of the things that IVP does differently hmm. and then sharing that with my colleagues about what <laughs> idea and what made my life that we did differently. Huh. So it was, it's a fun to have another window in. I used to work with IVP hmm. okay. as a contractor. So this was a, a different window into their process. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. You get to work for one and write for the other and you kind of cross-pollinate those things. So yeah, yeah. Kind of best practice. And then I have a, a dear friend that works at IVP as well that he didn't work on my book. He's a trade editor. Okay. Ethan McCarthy. And so then I we get some yakking in the background about that too. Gotcha. So, That's awesome. cool. Awesome. Yeah. So uh if our if our listeners are, are new to, to you and they're wondering, okay, what's who's this Todd Haynes guy? What what's his background? Maybe why should I listen to him? So what's maybe mm-hmm. let our listeners know a little bit about yourself, your your background, and your current work. So um my wife and I, Veronica, we've been married for 10 years, nearly a 11 now oh nearly 12 now (laughs) yeah you got to get that right yeah coming up and we have uh two small children franklin who's just started kindergarten and milo who's in preschool Mm. we all attend a lutheran church together yep yep what brought us out here was working for lexham so we moved my wife and i we didn't have children at the time we moved out here to take this job with lexham as a as an editor Uh, we moved from we moved from humboldt park in chicago Mm-hmm. Um, from from the Midwest, so this is new being out here in the Pacific Northwest, a different culture, different people. It's all very good. But when we were there in in Chicago, I was I did all my work at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. So I did a Master of Arts there and a Doctorate in Historical Theology under Scott Manage, mm-hmm. who's a a Beza guy yep. and does a lot of stuff with Cal- Reformation scholar. Yeah, yeah, um, and he's just a really dear pastoral guy. Uh, really took care of me so luther's been my jam that's what i've been doing since two, 2007 hmm. uh all under dr manage did a master's with him on what luther says about conscience in his church postal his church postal is kind of a running pastoral camp commentary on the lectionary hmm. um, it's now published in english through concordia publishing house volumes uh, 75 to 79 it's very fun, very good. I don't know what other things. Why should, else should you trust me? <laughs> I spent <laughs> I spent years of my life with the Reformation commentary on Scripture before yeah, this, yeah. and that was really just hanging around, reading the Bible and reading what the reformers said about the Bible. Uh, I spent a lot of time with Acts, mm-hmm. and I co-edited, and then I spent a lot of time translating for Psalms, hmm. for Second Corinthians. Philippians, Colossians. Um, I was trying to think. I worked on maybe 12 of those volumes hmm. and then moved on. They're wrapping up now, finally. So it's yeah. really, really cool to see. Yeah. Reference projects are just such a beast. And it was fun to be part of, but I am glad to not be doing so many reference projects. <laughs> yeah. You get to write your own books now. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, a lot of my job as an editor 
you're not asking this question, but I'm answering it anyway. <laughs> Go for it. Is to think about the books that I would like to see out in the world. Uh, and then to go and yeah. try to match the right idea with the right author. Um, so sometimes those things, they sit around. I have a whiteboard here with ideas. And sometimes they they float down and make reality quickly. Hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Nice. For you guys that are not on YouTube, Todd has a fierce mustache. <laughs> <laughs> You guys got to check it out. That's it's, right. Nick Nick tried a few weeks ago, and I don't see it anymore. Well, yeah. my beard kind of blended in. Um, maybe I trimmed it once, but it's inspiring, Todd. Um, that's that's true. I wish my, my mustache just doesn't have the, the strength behind it to It, it has be the – yeah, it has the girth to, to puff out. Yeah, it's it's just it's ours. I'm maybe glad just... you use that word, girth. That's... Yeah, yeah. It's it's such... and I keep thinking that I need to really trim out the the girth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, COVID um, helped. Yeah. Uh, well, must ask you a question <laughs> here. <laughs> Actually, I have to ask you a question first. <laughs> that has to do with your mustache, so I must ask you a question. There you go. About your mustache. Does this is the big question that all guys have to answer? around their mustache every every guy who has one who has a mm. who has a wife is does your wife like your mustache <laughs> mm. i think she does <laughs> she uh, hasn't been super direct about that question but oh. most of our married life i've had a mustache and in the last few months my youngest milo has been very interested in me shaving it <laughs> <laughs> so he keeps bringing it up and your my wife oldest, could be quietly seething in the background yeah. and then Feeding yeah. little ideas to Milo. I was like, oh, yeah. maybe you should tell your, yeah. maybe, yeah, that's, we'll, we'll never know. That's brilliant. I asked her and she's like, have I ever seen you without a mustache? And she has, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's been a long time since I've shaved it all off. Um, so Don't I keep shave it. it. Yeah. Looks great. Well, thanks. Yeah. You can always grow it back. That's, that's, that's true. That's, that's true. true. It's like a haircut. <laughs> so, uh, Martin Luther, uh, been around for centuries. Um, well, dead, he's not been, yeah, he's, he's been dead. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's been dead for centuries, but people have known about him for centuries. That's what I meant to say. Um, you don't even have to be Christian and you probably have heard the name Martin Luther. Um, if you are Christian, most likely you have heard of Martin Luther. If you're reformed, you definitely have heard of Martin Luther. He is the reformer. So he's, there's been so many books and works written about him over the last few centuries since the reformation, right? <clears throat> What's unique? What's unique about the approach you take in this work, as it relates to Luther's rule of faith? And again, YouTube audience, here's the book here: Martin Luther and the Rule of Faith, reading God's Word for God's people. So, what's unique about it? Yeah. So, and it, there really is an unbelievable amount of scholarship on Luther. So it's mm -hmm. something like Jesus, Paul, Luther. That's how. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Go and right. like, there's a Luther yearbook that comes out every year. Oh, yeah, here to 1200 items published. lots of things so it's hard to keep up but yeah with my project it's not so much that the approach is different it's that the content is different huh. the approach is following a tried and true there are lots of people that are digging around in, in sermons um luther a third of luther's critical works are sermons there's 2000 some probably about half of what his actual output was although it's pretty well documented after 1521. Hmm. Yeah, probably like 80, 90% of this stuff after that. But um, 
it's a really great place to go and, and look at what he's doing because he's not systematic. Uh, Luther holds his system inside and then he generates it into new situations. Mm -hmm. So he definitely has something in mind, but he's a very, very occasional author that's responding to all sorts of things. Uh, and so that's why people like this image of him as um, random or that he's at odds with himself. It's not that. He's hmm. fitting his words to a different audience hmm. yep. for a different situation. But so I'm part of that great tradition. There are lots of books where people are doing stuff with his sermons, but no one has written a book on the analogy of faith. Hmm. I, hmm. This is the only book on the analogy of faith. Wow. There's a big uh, article looking at the analogy of faith by Otto yep. Hoff from a while back. But otherwise, it's a very neglected topic, although everybody knows that it's true. Hmm. thing that he's up to. Luther scholars, this isn't like a surprise. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. So um, maybe I'll uh, I'll make this uh, a two-parter. So what, what got you interested in Luther's rule of faith and as it relates to his preaching and teaching? And then what does he mean by rule of faith or the analogy of faith? What, what are those rules? Yeah. So I had gotten into... Luther and the analogy of faith through the Reformation commentary on scripture. I was working on the Psalms commentary mm -hmm. and there was some stray comment that he made that I, I just hadn't seen it before. And so I went and chased it and it had to do with uh, in the, in one of the postals, there's a Lenten postal. I still can't find this quote, but he says something about the creed and the Bible being a two way street, something to that effect. Mm -hmm. And this made me think of that. And so I just kind of started obsessing about it and chased all his sermons on Romans 12, 6, and some of the other places that he starts using this language. I had originally gone to do a dissertation on uh, Luther's views of women, huh. but this captured my mind in a different way and represents a lot of... Luther's views on women would have been a lightning topic. Uh, it's something I'd still like to do, but hmm. probably not the best entry into the field. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this is what I did, but the, the RCS, that was what, it just captured my mind while I was working on Psalm set one through 72. Mm -hmm. I wish that I can remember the exact passage. I can't, but um, so Luther uses the word analogy of faith because he's using the very words of the Bible. It's Romans 12, six. That's, those are the very words that Paul uses. Yep. And, but he means just the same thing by what other people mean by rule of faith. And so what the rule of faith is is a way of reading something. So there are the general idea of a rule. Just how do I read this? What are my presuppositions that I'm loading into something? And how do yeah. I read this? So in a way, a heretic has a rule of faith just as well. Mm -hmm. Or somebody who's not a believer at all. Luther defines a specific rule of faith appropriate to Christians as the catechism. Mm -hmm. And so what he means by the catechism is specifically the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. Mm -hmm. it doesn't, sometimes when, when Luther starts talking about the catechism, people think he means the small catechism or the large catechism that he wrote, those are commentaries on the catechism. He hmm. will at times reference these like in his sermons after they're published in 1529. But usually when he says catechism, he means specifically the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. And sometimes he'll roll in the sacraments along yeah. with that. Um, yeah, so, so <laughs> that is what the rule of faith is. It is the catechism, which is... Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed. And yeah, the gotcha. gotcha. Yeah, because it, it's it's interesting too. Because he he kind of I'm not sure if he starts it or if he kind of popularizes. I know because the Heidelberg follows that after the Apostles' Creed, it goes through 
the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer. Um, <clears throat> so it does, I mean, it does the same thing that Luther is doing, and it kind of like it provides a running commentary. It kind of kind of seems like they're they're following they're following the lead of what Luther has done before before them. Yeah, Luther did something extra genius. So his catechism stands out compared to other catechisms because it's so short. Hmm. It's, he's not assuming that he's going to say everything that there is to say about the catechism in the small catechism. Yeah. Uh, it's a really great starting point, and it's really wonderful for starting more conversations. That's hmm. it. It's incredible in that way, where Westminster and Heidelberg, they're longer, are trying to answer all the questions. Mm-hmm. They're ordered a little differently. So yeah. one thing that I've been interested in, but I haven't dug in on Heidelberg, for example, mm-hmm. Heidelberg assumes the Ten Commandments starting out, but doesn't really bring it in until the end. So it really yep. goes, assume Ten Commandments, mm-hmm. Apostles' Creed, Lord's Prayer, and then Ten Commandments with yep. the second. Um, but Luther didn't discover this. He's not, he is kind of, he's the big dog for it, yep. for the reformers. Yeah. And Calvin bases his first institutes basically off the structure of the small catechism mm-hmm. um and then he just kept building but luther was taught this as a little kid when mm-hmm. he entered school the expectation was that you had these things memorized so he probably had them memorized as a four-year-old four or five-year-old um just like all his peers hmm. so this is just the thing that's handed down from very early on augustine wrote a book following this structure um but he, Luther did something new with it because it's so incredibly short. Hmm. And, and in particularly in contrast to the medievals, the medievals were adding lots and lots of stuff. Oh yeah. And it was going really ethical. And so he brings up something very new where even in the 10 commandments, you're hearing stuff about redemption in the first article of the creed, you're seeing stuff about grace. Yep. So. Awesome. Yeah. For the audience, can you, you, remind them or let them know the name of Luther's catechism or how to find it and how to access it. Yeah. I, you can just go to bookofconcord.org and uh, it, it'll be there. But the, the small catechism is something he made for children. Mm-hmm. Both of these, I should back up a little. Both of these are based off of a series of sermons that he gave. And what had happened is he went and visited churches in Saxony and there are all sorts of really ridiculous anecdotes. <laughs> that he just realized how not just the people didn't know anything, but the pastors. Didn't. I know. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the great ones was um, Melanchthon asked the pastor, how's preaching the 10 commandments going? And he says, I don't have that book. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure in, in there, there's something else where they're asking who's the Trinity. And somebody's <laughs> Pope, Mary. Oh, Satan. No. oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, if yeah. you read the preface of the small catechism, he talks about how the wretched condition of the of the parishes. Hmm. So, this was really meant for a simple question answer with small children, with the illiterate, and then he wrote the large catechism, and that's for pastors and for fathers. Hmm. But you can find those in a lot of different ways. There's a nice little app that Concordia Publishing House has. You just type in small catechism in your app store. It's really quite a nice thing hmm. and, and um yeah there's no shortage of additions of the small catechism and the large catechism and I'm trying to think i should oh <laughs> I right in part of you there you go there yeah. we go so, luther's um, small catechism yeah. nice and he, he, luther doesn't seem like somebody that people would want to upset 
So I can only imagine Luther's reaction when somebody said that Trinity, the way you explained it. (laughs) Well, he could be, he was, he's an interesting person because he he is a pastor. Yeah. And so a lot of the times when he's really mad with people, he's mad with people who are in a position to manipulate simple. Mm. Oh yeah. And so that's where the language that you hear with Erasmus, Mm -hmm. that's what he's worried about. And so with simple people, he can be very different. Yeah. So like at the end of the book of my book, I have an anecdote where he's talking with a little old lady yeah. in an outlying city outside of Wittenberg. And she refers to him as dear Mr. Dr. Luther. And just asks a question about, am I saved? Mm-hmm. He says, well, do you believe what the Apostles' Creed says? What does it say? And she's like, oh, yeah, I do believe that. <laughs> I think, well, good. You're good. And she's very happy about that. So he could be super simple with hmm. the right sort of folks. Sure. But yeah, most of his spit and fire he held for people that should know better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And teaching. Yeah. So um, where was I? Uh, so <clears throat> sorry, I got lost track. Sorry. For um can you give our listeners some examples of how the rule of faith is used by Luther in biblical interpretation and preaching? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was <laughs> rolling over some of these. So one thing I should preface, one of the things that the rule of faith does with Luther is it opens up the, the world of the Bible. Mm-hmm. The rule of faith is the very logic of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of your entryway in to the world of the bible so it's it's just kind of everywhere in his thinking and you can find it in any single verse that's one of the things that was very weird about this project is that he talks about it so often that the transcribers of his sermons would actually blur mm-hmm. some of the stuff out so they're like oh he's on about this again so they would just write a you for <laughs> etc yeah you write so, about them the first part of your book yeah 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 and so i picked five exemplary passages from the canon uh genesis 22 the sacrifice of isaac for the torah judges 14 14 because it's the only thing he preached on which is mm-hmm. out of the eater came something to eat yeah, the, not the one you expect him to go for but it's the one he goes for yeah yeah um he didn't preach any, an, a, at all on the other historical books and then psalm 72 from the wisdom literature isaiah 9 2 to 6 uh, for the prophets, and then Luke 24, the Emmaus passage for the New Testament. And that's the way that he published his translation of the Bible. That's the way that he looks at sort of the canon. Um, anyway, so I was I was thinking of, my go-to is probably Isaiah 9. Mm-hmm. Government is on his shoulder. It's a weird passage. And so what Luther is doing is he's thinking in the background of his mind about the Apostles' Creed. I believe in one holy Catholic church. What has Jesus done for me? He didn't buy me with silver or gold. He bought me with his blood. And so what Luther says is here, his government is on his shoulder. This shows an upside down kingdom, a kingdom like no other. All other kingdoms, whether by tyrants or good rulers, they are carried by their kingdom. The people carry the king. Hmm. The king's feet are on the people. He holds an orb. He has a crown. But that's not Jesus. Jesus' kingdom is when you look at the cross. You look at the cross, and there is his kingdom. And he bears his kingdom on his shoulder. It's his very people. 
And so he's tying in all these other things. Psalm 16, the boundary lines for me have fallen in good places. The boundary lines are Jesus' body, which is his church. Uh, and so he goes on about <laughs> this sort of rule that Jesus has, that Jesus carries us. We are the little lamb that he carries. We are the hurt man that the good Samaritan has picked up. Um, so this allows kind of for a generative use. The other thing, he'll also use Isaiah to bleed back into the creed. So Isaiah, a son is given to us. Luther will say, take all of the apostles' creed, take all of the, hmm. all the, the historical works that God has done for us and add for us. Because it's not just a historical fact that's just out there in the world. It is for you. And so when you proclaim it, you should say it, just like Isaiah does, a son given to us. Um, I think the I didn't really want to use the Emmaus passage because I feel like the New Testament's a little easier for folks. Mm -hmm. um, but the Emmaus passage is pretty wonderful with what he's doing about the forgiveness of sins in particular. Um, so he opens up about I, I should probably pull up the verse, um, <laughs> shouldn't I? Came across the sacrament one first. I'm sorry. No worries. Had it tabbed. So it's in the Emmaus passage. And so it is written, Christ must suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day and have preached in his name the repentance and forgiveness of sins among all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. Mm. And so here, Luther just uses the loci of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And he starts to unpack this. What is the forgiveness of sins? Is this something that I've purchased? Is this something that requires anything of me because of what I've done? And so he'll, he'll build up that the forgiveness of sins is something that's a free gift already given to me. It's already true even before I hear it. Just like the sun shines, whether or not I see it, whether or not a cloud blocks it, or if I'm inside, the sun is shining, just like Jesus' forgiveness. Hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, was, I didn't know if I wanted to go into some of the other passages, especially Judges 14, 14. <laughs> it might be an interesting one because it sets up clearly the typology. Yeah, oh yeah. So out of the eater came something to eat, out of the sweet came something, out of the strong came something sweet. Yeah. So he's saying, yeah, what, what could this be? Out of the eater came something to eat. He sets up um, this old, old church metaphor, the baited Leviathan metaphor, mm -hmm. which the baited Leviathan metaphor is that uh, God is going to catch Satan. Satan thinks that he's going to catch a fish. And so what God does is he puts this little worm of a man on the divinity of a hook. And then Satan goes and chomps on this, what he thinks is a worm of man, gets caught on the divinity of, of God, of life himself. And so he, here he is in the eating, he dies. So out of the eater came something to eat. When out of death comes Jesus' life, his, his bread, his body and blood given for us. Um, out of the strong comes something sweet. It's the same thing again. Um, and these are the sort of neat, the tricks that from the outside they look flat if you don't think this way it seems too easy but what he's doing is some really high-powered stuff 
in the background with Chalcedon, the way that Jesus natures and the unity of his person. Um, and then he is doing some pretty high-powered stuff with pastoral care, that all this stuff is for you. It's not just something out in the wilderness, some fact of a king that's been killed. That's cool that you mentioned that you did one on Luke 24. I feel like that's such a power. I don't, I just don't feel I know. <laughs> and it's uh, objective truth. It's such a powerful chapter in the Bible of Jesus's identity. It's always been a very, um, I've in my own Christian life been really important to me referencing. So that was really cool. You just brought out that he did Luke 24 personally. I thought that was really cool. Um, so you mentioned that, the rule of faith has other contexts and beliefs and worldviews uh, that could be applied. So as far as the relationship between the rule of faith and scripture as authoritative, what is that relationship that makes the rule of faith and scripture authoritative? Yeah. So I, I should say there are, there are many rules of faith or possible rules of faith. Right. Um, yeah. So there could be any given rule of faith, uh, Yeah, I mean, somebody that denies supernatural deeds, that is a, a rule of faith for them. Yeah, or somebody who just says, me and my Bible, and that's all I need. I don't need any rule of faith. Um, I'm going to come into it with a clean slate each and every time without right. being influenced by anything else. Yeah, so what you end up doing is you're reading in your own reasons, presuppositions, and the ideas of the world around you. Mm -hmm. so you find what you started with. But so the relationship between the rule of faith and, and the Bible is that it's all in the Bible. Um our father and the ten commandments quite clearly you know mm -hmm. those passages exodus 20 and, and matthew 5 um or matthew 6 and then the passages for baptism communion and absolution likewise mm -hmm. those are just the very words of the bible the apostles creed is the one that probably hangs folks up the most mm -hmm. um, today but the apostles creed really is just stitched together from all sorts all over the bible and luther does accept he does say multiple times that the Holy Spirit has penned this. The Apostles' Creed is written with by the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. through the apostles. He doesn't necessarily sit down on, there's a tradition that 12, the 12 apostles wrote the Apostles' Creed. There's two traditions. One is that each apostle contributed a line. Mm -hmm. The Apostles' Creed used to be lined up in 12 lines instead of three articles um, for Protestants. Well, everybody does the three articles these days. Um, and then there's another tradition that they did it by committee. That they all 12 mm -hmm. sat down. Oh, okay. And it happened at Pentecost. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Luther will talk about the Trinity and the catechism. That the Father gave us the Ten Commandments. Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer. And the Holy Spirit has given us the Apostles' Creed. Mm. So he'll line it up that way. He sees it as inspired. He sees it as scripture. Mm -hmm. um, and for people that that's really hard on that the other thing in the background there for that for the apostles creed is luther wants to talk about the relationship between things and words hmm. so there is a a thing that can be expressed in many different ways so the christian faith can be expressed in many different words but it still is one faith that faith doesn't change hmm. and so the the creed you could say the truth of the creed in different words more or less hmm. but it doesn't change the substance hmm. to be platonic about it um 
but this is the thing that he he used he used the creed because it's what the catholic tradition used everybody mm-hmm. knew it it's short it's memorable mm-hmm. and then you can just pick up from there mm-hmm. so <laughs> i i should should go back and just say that for luther reading the bible according to the real faith is just what scripture interpreting scripture is yep yeah yeah so often that gets muddled up that it's yeah it's the uh like i said the me and my bible or i'm just gonna read it as i am and as nobody else told me to and i let nothing else come into this and, and luther i think helps correct that a little bit it's like no you actually you let the bible rule your bible reading and you let the tradition not rule your reading but kind of inform your reading and say hey this is a little bit outside the bounds this is outside the bounds um, but he helps us read our bible better yeah so he's picking up i mean the rule of faith is something that was given to him by the catholic church yeah he learned this and it's not that it belongs to the catholic church exactly for all christians so in this sense, tradition is the very specific thing of what the Bible gives us, what the Bible hands down. Mm-hmm. Um, I was worried that that would be misunderstood a little bit with the way that tradition is used in this book. It's not that he's going and I mean, he is dealing with all sorts of old church fathers and medieval folks, but it's not where he's getting this stuff. The tradition is the tradition Jesus gave us. Yeah. And that's what he's reading the Bible by the by its own light. I think, yeah, I think that'll come through in the book. Cause I, I, I can see at points people not being, um, not being confused, but it's for maybe broader evangelicalism, I guess you can call it, who are not used to some of these words. It can come across as anti-biblical or whatever you want to use the word. But I, if, if, if you dig deeper and Nick will ask a question about this too, if you dig deeper into it, um, it does, it does make more sense. It's, it, it is a biblical thing. Um, and it imposes biblical standards on us, but yeah, I just encourage people to, to read this, not impose what you think is what on is, is tradition, but to, to read from what's being talked about. Yeah. And I guess to step out a little bit from it, the way that Luther sees all this, um, it, sometimes we think of the, the Bible is something that we hold in our hands. Yeah. Luther doesn't think that way. Luther thinks of the Bible as something that holds you in its hands. Hmm. So we're in the Bible's world, not the Bible in our world. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just a light switch. Like that's, there's not mm-hmm. an arguing to that. And once you see that that's what he's doing, it's mm-hmm. very different. Yeah. <laughs> and so he, he says this time and again, something to the effect of people are dark. Humans are dark. But God's word is light. So trying to bring reason unaided by the spirit and word mm-hmm to try to understand who God is or even what the Bible says is a fool's errand. It would be like if you could somehow try to take darkness and hold the darkness to the light, be like, can I see this light better? (laughs) Um, That's how he sees it. Mm. But that, yeah, it's just an on off switch there. Yeah. That that's a good pivotal way of thinking. Scripture is ultimate authority and has authority over the church, not the church over scripture. Yeah. And you find yourself within it, not trying to find things within it. Right. And that's so, um, so Luther along the way, he's, you know, the church is the creature of the word. The word gives birth. Uh, I don't know if I use this quote in the book, but there is a provocative quote somewhere where Luther says that um, we too must become Mary. And just as Mary bore Jesus, we by the word bear Jesus in the world. And that's the act of the church. 
that by receiving the word, men and women alike, we give birth to Christ in our lives. Um, and so it's the word is what conceives the church. Mm-hmm. The word is what makes the church. Yep. So you can find the word apart from, he has a tract where he talks about this, that you can find a church without the word, but that is no church at all. Mm-hmm. But where the word is, that's where the church is. Yep. That makes sense. Yeah. Historically and even mistakenly presently in some churches, they're holding this, they're holding uh, authority over scripture versus allowing scripture to hold authority over them. Right. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. There are folks that I think that's, that's the struggle of all of us, right? Yeah. It's, do we really want, I think that's like when you read a Bible passage and you get cranky about when I get cranky about a Bible passage, often it's because I don't want to let that piece of my life go, or I don't want to let control go over, you know, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's at once the view that Luther's pushing is sort of freeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it also means you get into a lot of conflicts. Yeah. Hey, all, this is Peter, one of the co-hosts of the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast with a word from one of our sponsors, our title sponsor at Logos Bible Software. Have you gotten your free book of the month from Logos yet? Join tens of thousands of believers who build their library with a free new digital theological book each and every month. Then read it on the free Logos Bible Study app. Logos is the easiest to use, most powerful Bible study tool on the planet. You heard that right, on the planet. It works on mobile, the web, and even has an amazing app for your laptop. I myself use the mobile app every night to read from the Hebrew, the Greek, and a few other resources. I love it. I've used other apps, and this is the best one on the market. It really truly is. And if you want to go even deeper, you can choose from a vast selection of the top books for in-depth Bible study. There's also step-by-step videos to help you learn how to study the Bible like a pro. So get your free book of the month today. Go to logos.com slash guilt grace and get started with Logos today. We have this link in our show notes. So just open up our podcast, find our show notes, click this link, and you can get started with us with Logos Bible Software. Word from one of our sponsors, Westminster Seminary, California, their upcoming seminary for a day, Friday, October 28th, the seminary I graduated from just a couple months ago. If you or someone you know feels called to serve the church and want to be better equipped, consider coming to Westminster Seminary, California, a confessionally reformed institution that offers master's programs in biblical and theological studies, historical theology, and divinity. And West Cal is unique in its approach to a rigorous education because it emphasizes a mastery of the original biblical languages. You will learn Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and you will use these extensively in every one of your classes, and you'll be comfortable reading the Bible in the original languages for preaching. It intentionally maintains a small student-to-professor ratio, so you'll know your fellow students And you also get to know your professors really, really well. And it's one of the few seminaries in America that focuses on face-to-face education with no online elements. And they understand the importance of having pastor scholars, so all of the 
teachers, all the professors at Westminster, they're all pastor scholars who have extensive experience in ministry, training the next generation of leaders and pastor scholars in the church. But don't just take my word for me, even though I went to seminary for a day in March of 2019 and eventually graduated in May of 2022, go visit the campus yourself. Westcal is offering this seminary for a day on October 28th, like I said, where you can sit in on classes, probably two to three classes, meet other students who are also interested and meet current students and, and pick their brains, have lunch with the professor, get to know him, pick his brain as well, and see the campus housing, which is gorgeous and about half to a third of the cost of anything else. So it's, it's actually affordable now to live on campus and in San Diego. And the amenities, including a gym, which I loved, in person. This visit will also include a special Reformation Day lecture by our good friend of the show and professor of historical theology and church history at Westminster, Dr. R. Scott Clark, Why the Reformation Matters for Ministry. And if you need help with your travel expenses, WestCal offers a $400 travel grant to help cover any expenses of the visit. So you can see if this might be the next step for you. It was this step that really solidified the decision for me, and I'm confident it will do the same for you. So go to www.wscal.edu for more information, or go to our show notes and click that link in our show notes. It'll take you to this. Go sign up, and we might see you there at Westminster Seminary, California. Hey guys, a quick shout out to one of our sponsors, Reformation Heritage Books. We've partnered with them and they've partnered with us to try to push a couple of their uh, published books. One of them is the 10 volume series of William Perkins, who a 16th and 17th century reformed writer, wrote commentaries on Galatians, Revelation, uh, wrote The Golden Chain of Salvation, some incredibly influential works in reformed theology. Also, the Family Worship Study Guide, which gives you quick little snippets, about a paragraph each of all 66 books of the Bible, each chapter in those books. So it's really good for family worship. And also they have basically every major publisher uh, in the world. They sell their books at cheaper than Amazon uh, sells them. So if you guys go to heritagebooks.org, drop a line that Guilt, Grace, Gratitude sent you and purchase their books. We'd be grateful and you're supporting a great cause. Yeah, and RHB Books is the largest confessionally reformed publisher in the world, and they publish historical and modern works on a consistent basis. So you can find them on Twitter at RHB underscore books and on Instagram, Reformation Heritage Books. Yep. So go on over there, get these books. There's so much good stuff coming out, and hopefully this is good. Yeah, yeah. So, but uh, Luther, Luther is well known for a strict law gospel distinction, which we're all about on our show. We've talked about it numerous times. We love underlining the law gospel distinction, and he has a laser focus on a Christocentric interpretation of scripture as it is related to his preaching and teaching. And many have pointed out that it seems that Luther is not being literal, but allegorically pulling from Christ out of the pro proverbial hat. Can you explain Luther's literal approach to the script, to the scripture and his Christocentrism, which is Christ in all the text. Right. This relates to the thing about we're in the Bible's world, not the Bible in our world. And the, yeah. 
the other thing I was thinking when, when we were talking about that was about the creed, that the Apostles' Creed holds all of history. It is the history of histories. So every minute of every day, every month of every year of your life, it's all there. It's all in that recursively. All of the histories of the greatest nations, they're all there in the Apostles' Creed. But it's telling a different story. It's telling sacred history, which is a lot more interesting, actually, than secular history. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this relates to this idea of, <laughs> is Luther just an allegorist? Mm-hmm. So he's accused in his own lifetime as being an allegorist. Yep. He calls him an inept allegorist. But, and then Luther also says all sorts of harsh things about allegory. Calls it a harlot, and um, I'm forgetting some of the other ones right now. But you know what they are. You can. Mm-hmm. And what he he's doing is he's not neatly distinguishing his terms. He's talking about different modes of allegory. Yeah. So when he's talking about allegory as a harlot, he's saying people that go and they particularly build doctrine out of the Bible. So that's something that he sees like the logic for purgatory or for indulgences. Yeah, because he's he's reacting pretty harshly against some like medieval exegesis too. Yeah, the big thing he's reacting against is scholasticism. Yeah. Um, so Luther is a scholastic. Mm-hmm. He's a very well-trained scholastic, but he sees the problems that when you start to think scholasticism, scholasticism is for pastoral care. It's not. It's not any use. And when you start to explain something like indulgences or purgatory, you have to use scholasticism. That's that's how you. I <laughs> maybe I'll get in trouble for that, but that's <laughs> when I, I was, agree. Yeah, you have to rereading. I was really struck by that, yeah. just by how much. Yeah, the system of indulgences. It is using scholasticism to set up this system that is actually a lot more complicated than just the straightforward system of absolution. But I've kind of gone far afield here from the allegory question. So part of when people see Luther. Oh, so when he's talking about allegories at Harlot, that's what he's talking about. He yeah. is happy to do allegories, and you'll see it all over in his sermons, in um, in a lot of his commentaries. Which is why I think people are confused about Luther is he's so against it, yet it looks like he's doing it. Yeah, well, so there are t- he'll distinguish. So there are times that we would say that he's, uh, modern folks would say that he's allegorizing. And there are other times that usually the heading is in the church postal, something like armor. And then after that, he'll talk about the text allegorically and what he's doing there is he's saying we establish the text on the literal sense mm-hmm. we'll talk about it in a second and then it's fine and fitting to do an allegory then what you're doing is you're drawing it out and adorning the text and making it beautiful and you're talking about these things that are true and you're rhetorically landing points with your audience with your congregants with those that are listening that's the point of allegory and so it's only to be ruled by the faith any allegory that doesn't fit the rule of faith is not appropriate. And so in there's a passage in Genesis where he kind of throws out the list, you know, mm-hmm. it should be about the church. It should be about Christ. It should be about uh, the ministry of the word. And so the literal sense for him, he talks about two different aspects of literal sense. These aren't his terms. They're mine. Um, but one sense is sort of this strict. I use different terms that I'm not thinking of right now, but anyway, there's one sense is the literal in the sense that we mean it. Like here are the words, here's how you conjugate it, mm-hmm. the literary context and all that. But those words are read in the grammar and logic of the Bible. So that's this broader literal sense, which is Jesus. Mm-hmm. This book is a spiritual book about spiritual things. And that's how we read it. So 
So he's saying, if if you're not seeing Jesus in the text, you're not reading it literally. Yep. That is what's there. And uh, so today there's, you see this with some of the, some discussions about the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. People are very reluctant to go and find Jesus there. Mm-hmm. So the, the big, <laughs> for Christianity, if Jesus is in the Old Testament, Christianity is false. Mm-hmm. If the New Testament is just an allegorization of the Old Testament, we got really big problems. And so that's where when when what folks often see in Luther is they're saying that he sees too little because he just sees Jesus in the Old Testament. Mm. He would say, if you just think you see secular history and David in the Old Testament, you are the one who sees too little. Yeah. Jesus holds all these things together. Yeah. And so if you're not seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, that means you have no gospel. You are only seeing law. Mm. You're only seeing ethics, how to live, examples of life. Mm-hmm. And so um, at the beginning of the church postal, he has this little thing about how to read the gospels. And he throws out this gift example distinction. So he says, if Jesus is only an example for yep. you, he's no better than any other saint. Mm-hmm. He is an example for you, but he has to first be a gift. He's, he first has to bring his life, his forgiveness, his salvation. And then he can be an example to you. And that applies just as much to the Old Testament. The Old mm-hmm. Testament is an example, but first it's a gift, a gift for our life and yep. for our salvation and for the forgiveness of sins. Um, yeah, does that, does that help? Yeah, me? so it sounds like he's a big fan of typology in the Old Testament because there's people, places, and things in the Old Testament that point ultimately to Christ, real pl- people, real places, and real things in the Old Testament. And he's saying you need to understand how to read the Old Testament well to see those typological nouns, if you will, in the Old Testament, how they're pointing to Christ. Yeah, so he is doing a lot with typology. And so the, one of the things that's hard with reading the old guys is they do not neatly distinguish typology, allegory, and figural yeah. reading. So <laughs> some of those things the they will see as yeah. in a non-literal mode. Which, some of them they will, yeah. You know, no, I, this typology is a literal typology, where today when we use those, people aren't necessarily thinking it's a literal interpretation. Yeah. Often. But but yeah, I, Nick, you're, you're right. I mean, so there's a lot of typological reading, but there's also a lot of literal reading. Um, I think it's Isaiah 40. The uh, yep. Israel will pay double for her sins. Mm-hmm. Luther says, what, what, what's that mean? Oh, well, she gets justified and sanctified. <laughs> yep. And so he's saying this, this text is literally about Jesus, where we hear it as punishment, but that's not what it is. Genesis 3.15, um, the serpent will bite his heel, but he'll crush his head. That's literally about Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's not a type there. And so he'll do some other things like that with um, that Isaiah, likewise, mm-hmm. but also Psalm 72. Um, he'll give the king your justice, the king's son your righteousness. Again, we can say that it's about David, but I think in that way, Luther would actually flip it, where he'd say, uh, yeah, this is true about David only because it's really true about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, where David can't actually have God's justice. David can't actually have God's righteousness it has to be given to him and only god can have those things yeah yeah because like you said beginning of your book you also talk about it too is 
he has he has not nice words to say about purely moralistic preachers who just preach moralism. He's like, you should preach moralism, but if you don't ground it in the work of Christ who has given you access to this kind of life, then this moralism is just is just law, which is what he's in, inventing against this kind of Old Testament reading that just sees it as history, not as um as Christ shaped history. Yeah. Um yeah, so that's and I, I think people and this this can strike a lot of I think modern readers and listeners is is kind of odd because it's just not the way we we typically think of it. I think we're more formed by kind of German criticism or higher criticism and more what you would call atomistic reading of text or just the text itself, not informed by the canon. I um, mean, I think also something that that would also strike readers and listeners of this as odd is is Luther's emphasis. And these are words that I think we 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 import too much Catholicism into of absolution and sacraments. Um, but he opposes them to the Catholic practice amongst a lot of other things. So how how did Luther's interaction with the Roman Catholic Church, because it's not really official until kind of after Trent, uh, and he's also part of the Catholic Church, but he also gets uh, exiled from the Catholic Church. How, how does this influence his, his preaching and teaching? Um, like, what's he, what's he doing? Because it, it sounds like it, but it's not it. And Luther's Catholic. I mean, that's what, so he's, the terms that are often used is, he would call himself something like an evangelical Catholic. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I had second guesses about this later, but I, the, there's the word papist throughout the book. Yep. The term he uses. And um, he's distinguishing between a Catholic like himself, mm -hmm. who is committed to sort of this unadulterated gospel, to a Catholic who ultimately has an allegiance in this papal magisterium and fought. I mean, that's actually early on, Luther was opposed by some Roman Catholics who said, no, the Pope is our analogy of faith. Yeah. Uh, other, <laughs> other Roman Catholics didn't like that either, um, mm. that idea. But so Luther's getting all this stuff from, from the Western church and he, he took no issue with Roman Catholic teaching on baptism mm -hmm. in a way he didn't take issue. He took issue with certain uses of communion. Yeah. Um, but, and even with absolution, still he's saying these things are what they are. Yeah. Our ideas and words don't influence them. The problem is that people, as you believe, so you have. So like, if you think your dad is a terrible person, it doesn't matter what he really is you still think he's a bad person. You're going to treat him that way and you're going to interpret all his actions that way. And so Luther's concern in the Reformation is to get back at well, who really is my father? Who really, what really is this bread and wine? What really is this water? And what he'll do is he goes back and uses the word to redefine all these things. So it, for him, his dispute with the Catholic Church is, is really over absolution. Yeah. So he was upset that essentially you're buying forgiveness. Mm -hmm like all this other stuff going on too but that's essentially we're often taught that the reformation is about indulgences the reformation is about something very concrete can my sins be forgiven mm -hmm. what does it take for my sins to be forgiven and that's all that he's chasing mm. and then so he's saying no this is a pure and good gift of jesus there is no treasury of merit mm -hmm. When Jesus says, I forgive, he says, I forgive because Jesus is my righteousness and I am his sin. 
this is the, the great exchange. So when Satan comes and, and drags the bad things that I do in front of my face, I don't go and find uh, an indulgence or something like this. I say, hey, talk to Jesus. He's got my sin. And I know you, you're scared. Of him. Um, but that's what Luther often encourages is this trash talking to Satan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then over communion, over the Eucharist, what Luther is upset about is the practice of private mass, mm-hmm. the idea of the re-sacrifice of Jesus. Um, and then his issue with transubstantiation is that you're expecting people, you're asking simple people to understand mechanics. Mechanics that we can't know and mechanics that an illiterate peasant, it's not going to make a whole lot of sense to. Mm-hmm. So one of my favorite passages of Luther is he's like transubstantiation. Why not trans accidentation? <laughs> Which would be it tastes yeah. like bread, it yeah. tastes like wine, but it looks like a foot. It looks like human blood. <laughs> <laughs> I always find that very funny. But um, and then baptism. So the sacramentarians, uh, the reformed and and Anabaptist, that's who he really takes issue with over yeah. what does it mean? And he has this quote where he said, I'd rather drink Jesus' blood with the papists than to remember him with the sacramentarians yeah um so he's saying jesus is really truly present in ways that i don't understand and say i leave it to jesus i don't know how he's here but this is his body this is his blood he said it so his word is true and then with baptism he takes utterly no issue with the catholic church Mm -hmm. about what baptism is and so there's actually in one of the new disputation volumes in luther's works um, i think it's 73 there's a student that's like, oh, well, the Catholic Church, their sacraments don't count. And Luther actually pipes up in the disputation and says, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> it counts. Their baptism works. Their yeah. Eucharist works. Their forgiveness works because it's not dependent on them. Right. And that's when we talk about ex opera operato mm-hmm. and ex opera operantis. Mm-hmm. Both of those are medieval ideas about the way that the human is performing these acts. Yeah. And so... If you don't understand that that's what's, if a person doesn't understand that's what those terms refer to, Luther can be very jarring because Luther is saying the words do it. God does this thing. Who gives you his body and blood? God does. Who forgives your sin? God does. Who baptizes you? God does. Not this man. Don't look at the man that's doing it. Listen to the words. The words are what do the whole thing Um, because God's speech does what it says. So that's, that's sort of the, I mean, that is the, the big discovery of Luther, is the power of the word. Mm-hmm. It's not something that he invents. He just says so clearly in comparison to others. And so then he goes and really looks at the inheritance of the Western church according to that principle. Mm-hmm. Where mm-hmm. is it? Written? What word is that? Who is doing this? And the things that don't line up, he pitches. So um, later in life, he writes a thing against the uh, theologists of Louvain, and it's uh, specifically on the sacraments. And so he's throwing out, Luther sees there to be four. I, I feel like I'm kind of wandering in the dark. No, do bit, it. But, yeah. But um, you still talk about this in your book, so it's okay. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so he, he, Luther basically sees there to be four sacraments. According to the Augsburg Confession, there's three. Yeah. Uh, baptism, communion, and absolution. But essentially, Luther sees Jesus as the sacrament. 
And mm-hmm. so wherever Jesus' word is, that's a sacrament. The preaching of the word, it's a sacrament. It gives Jesus and his life and his forgiveness and his salvation. You're baptized. You receive communion. You're forgiven. It's the same thing. And then so he walks through and says, well, marriage, Jesus didn't ordain it, so it can't be a sacrament. Mm-hmm. He'll, he actually does this very subversive thing of saying that marriage is a sign of a sacrament. That's what a sacrament looks like husband and wife together, but it's not a sacrament. Because mm-hmm. the Catholic Church has that as a sacrament. Right. Just going against that. Right. And so he's not saying anything bad about marriage. And he'll, no. when he talks about marriage, he, he, he has a lot of interesting things to say about that stuff to today, where he says, look at, look at your spouse. Your yeah. spouse is classed in God's word. So I don't know if you've ever seen a, like a Roman Catholic procession for the Eucharist, mm-hmm. where there's a monstrance. Yep. Because it's a beautiful gold thing with a host inside of it. He compares God's word around your spouse like that. Your your spouse is held up in this monstrance of God's word. And so when you see this woman in three of our cases, there's no comparison. This is the woman that God gave you. There's no other woman that's beautiful. There's no other woman that you're attracted to. You, all of that is defined by God's word that he mm-hmm. gave you. He said, this woman, she is bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh. Um, anyway, that's a sidetrack. But a little <laughs> yeah, sidetrack. yeah and, no, that's great because Luther had some fun things to say about marriage because he, he had some fun things to say about his wife and um, they have a they have an interesting marriage too. Um, yeah, people should read about that too. Yeah. And, and, um, one of my favorite Luther stories about his, him and his wife is that he... He didn't want to bother her. He wasn't very competent with day-to-day things. I mean, this is a guy that (laughs) got married. His wife said that the bed hadn't been washed for a year. That sounds like my marriage. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, so he's always kind of trying to show that he's competent. And so (laughs) he has this hole in his pants and he's like, I'm going to fix the hole. And he finds some cloth cuts a hole and he patches it up and his wife is like why did you cut a hole in your son's brand new pants that i just bought him no way that's Um, funny the ordinary things that you're just like oh he's still (laughs) we can relate to yeah some 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 takeaways on what you're saying too uh just to help help the audience too um catholic church seven sacraments um and he saw outside of the Lord's Supper and baptism, the rest of those five sacraments really aren't really should be applied, right? So he holds three. He holds three. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and absolution. Yeah, absolution. So he'd be different than than reformed because he's yeah he'd see slightly different ordering. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, so he, I mean, the part of this gets into like technical details about. Yeah what is a sacrament and so there's a scholastic definition that a sacrament is only an external thing wed to a promise of jesus mm-hmm. and so luther says you'll actually see this if you um i'm not thinking which one it is anyway in one of his books he begins with three sacraments and then at the end he's like well if this is the definition you only have two um, oh, there we go but for the rest there of his go. life he <laughs> yeah. he teaches three or four he will yep. actually call preaching itself a sacrament yeah um, because the word is what does it. Yep. And so his which reform supposed to be like means of grace. It's they would be right. yeah, like different different words kind of for the same thing. But it like he has debates with a lot of the reformers on what's a sacrament, what's not, and what's Lord's Supper, what's not. 
Mm. There's some there's some fun dialogues. And then the go ahead. Oh, I, sorry. I was just going to say he doesn't ever really define what a sacrament is, but yeah. essentially a sacrament is something that Jesus commanded yeah. with his word. Gotcha. And yeah. So he'll go and he uses command in this very positive sense that uh, how do I know that I can receive this meal? I can receive this meal not because of anything that I did, but because Jesus said, receive this meal. Yeah. Yeah. I command you to take it. Um, same thing with forgiveness, same thing with baptism. Yeah. Um, he, so the, the sacraments that he cuts out, marriage, ordination, um, last rites, and confirmation are things that he's like, there's no promise from Jesus, or Jesus clearly didn't institute this, or mm-hmm. it's not a sign. So he'll, he'll just go through it that way. Um, and none of those things he's taken away from, he's not saying that they're bad things. Yeah. He's wanting to redirect everyone back to the word. So he'll, he'll actually say, when you're sitting in church and you listen to the consecration, close your eyes, put your eyes in your ears. Mm-hmm. And in that way, see these words. Yeah, because yep. not every Christian gets married. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. and then further, further takeaway too, um, and then I'll shut up. <laughs> it sounds like to just kind of everything you're saying, and I think I vaguely heard you say this, um, he, his ultimate goal and, and what he's chasing is to clarify salvation and assurance of salvation, which is truly a gift. And that is his goal that he's trying to clarify and chase. Yeah. He's always wanting to know, how can I know this is my God? Yeah. And so what Luther's, this is the whole doctrine of the word thing. Where do I find God? Where God promises to be found is where he speaks and so wherever you find god's word you find all of god you find all of jesus here he is with all like literally his person and then all the good gifts that he gives forgiveness life salvation um his holiness rubs off on us to use a phrase from hell hell sink file um that that's what sanctification is it's jesus kind of rubbing <laughs> off on us. Um, mm-hmm. But so that was always the thing that he was he was pursuing is he was worried about these doctrines that aren't with the word because it's to pursue the naked God, bare divinity, which is too much to to take. So that's um I only listen to this. There's some podcasts where they the 1517 lads are yeah. interviewing Stephen Paulson. And Stephen Paulson is talking about uh Moses and his wife throwing the child's foreskin at his, at his feet. Moses, right? Anyway, this story where the foreskin's thrown. <laughs> yeah, and, um, that's right. Yep. And so he's he's talking about the way that he likes to see that is that what was happening is Moses was wrestling with God without a word. And that's why he thought he was going to get killed. And so his wife throws a word of God, the promise of circumcision. Mm-hmm. that's what brings salvation and so he's this is the problem that luther had is he went and tried to find all these places where god had not promised to be for salvation and all that did was make him feel worse make him feel more inferior make him think that god hates him and so this is always the thing that he points back to so we, lutherans are slightly different on the reformed when they talk about assurance mm-hmm. reform folks will do this too but the question isn't uh, do you believe in this abstract doctrine of the assurance of your salvation? 
the question is, when you look at the cross, when you look mm -hmm. at that man on that cross, who is he? What did he do? Did he do it for you? And that that response. So this is where um, one thing that I find really tricky about Luther with American Protestants is we just think of him as kind of the OG Protestant. And so he thinks like we do, but he doesn't. Mm -hmm. So when he's saying things like that, he's taking Romans 10, 17 very seriously, that faith comes by hearing. So the word gives all these gifts. Yeah. So it's not when I look at the cross and respond, I didn't actually contribute anything. I haven't done anything. This is all empowered by the word and by the spirit. That's a long-winded way of saying, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're onto the right things. Um, I just wanted to, I, those were some of the things that I it's, had on my it's mind. It's not conditional upon our, what we do. And that's something that kind of goes against the Catholic church is very much a conditional type of thing for salvation where he's saying, no, it's by faith alone, by grace alone, by Christ yeah. alone. So in, in his, in his time period in particular, that was a real problem. I mean, yeah. Catholic church today is uh, quite driven. Like I always wonder what would Luther think if he read somebody like Joseph Ratzinger, um, there's some things in there I think he'd disagree with, but there's some things in Ratzinger that I'm like, sounds like Luther. Mm -hmm. um, and oh, I was thinking something when you were talking about the, the conditioned. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, in the large catechism on baptism, Luther talks about this is the what is baptism? What mm -hmm. is salvation? What are these things? And then how do we use it? So he'll say, baptism on an unbeliever is just like a gold chain on a harlot. <laughs> still spends it still works the question is will you receive it will you mm -hmm. take it and so that's always what those questions are about it's not this like one and done or the the other sort of about this the way that john kleinig an australian lutheran fellow talks about the parable of the sower that we often think of the parable of the sower as the first time that we hear the word and john makes this point no every time you hear the word this is what happens. Mm -hmm. Satan attacks the word in just this way. And so that's why we constantly are preaching the gospel. That's why we never leave the gospel. And that's why the rule of faith, the catechism, is this childish doctrine that to leave it mm -hmm. is to stop believing. It's not to advance. It's to give up the game. Yep. Yeah. And on the flip end of that baptism comment, um, I believe this is maybe from Luther. You're the expert. Correct me if I'm wrong. If... Uh, a true believer hasn't been baptized yet, or you're, you're planning on baptizing that person, or you were planning on being baptized and you died before you were baptized. It still counts because the intent was there. The faith was there that would result in you ba actively baptizing. But so you that, died. it's a Catholic doctrine about the baptism of desire. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. So Luther would talk about wherever you meet the word, that's where you're saved. Mm -hmm. And, so yeah, that uh, I I don't know that I've encountered him talk. I have not personally encountered him talking as much about somebody. It, it it's not a pastoral issue in the day. There's not like people in Wittenberg that weren't baptized because when you're born, you're baptized. Everyone That's, is, yeah. That right. was part of the great th threat of Anabaptists is that mm -hmm. to reject baptism wasn't just to do this thing with the church. It was also to reject your status in the nation. So I haven't seen him talk a whole lot about what it means to die without baptism because it just wasn't a live pastoral issue mm -hmm. but what it did make me think of if mm -hmm. you'll indulge me was a yes. baptism 
pastoral issue that he did come up with all the time. And that's, there are several times that he's asked, dear Dr. Luther, if a baby is baptized in beer, does it count? <laughs> Should <laughs> you be baptized? That's such a German question. Yeah, it is. It sounds totally <laughs> ridiculous, but yeah. it's actually like a really live pastoral issue yeah. of the day. You don't have running water. No, the yeah. water and is water's gross. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. this is something you'll hear. He preaches a lot about like, oh, the kids, the, these kids, they're just drunk. They're drinking too much. And it has to do with the way the beer is made. But anyway, you didn't have a whole lot of clean water. So at a pregnancy, when a, a woman is giving birth, that's the stuff that's on hand for her to drink is beer. And so what's happening is the child is in distress and the uh, midwife is worried kind of for the issue that you're talking about. This is yes. from around. She's worried about the child not being baptized. And so she throws beer and says, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I baptize you. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and so that's what they're asking. They're saying, did it count? Mm -hmm. Do I need to be rebaptized or did that count? And so what he'll say is, as she believed, so it was. She grabbed it, believing that it was water. And so it is water. And beer is water. But also he's saying, the word is what does it. The word is what saves. Mm -hmm. The word is what baptizes you. The related question that usually comes up there with the beer thing is somebody says, uh, well, if only the foot was baptized, do we have to baptize the whole baby? Mm -hmm. And so he then he goes and rails about um, some of Aristotle's theories about the connection between body and soul. He's like, no, where your body meets the, the word, all word. of Jesus is there. And yeah, so that's where, so he is coming back to those very concrete issues of, of assurance. And yeah. that's a situation where you see, you know, strictly speaking by the church's definition, baptism is water and the triune name. So baptizing someone in beer isn't technically that. So you could see a scenario around other things that maybe rebaptism would be required like back in the day mm -hmm. that was the, the big complaint with um stephen the second was that there were weird things that heretics were doing then we rebaptize so that you're certain but what luther's i'm but what luther's doing there is he's he's pointing you right back to the word so he's saying don't be too caught up on the ceremony of it you caught up on a word mm -hmm. you're given that turn back to that Turn back to the word. Do you hear this? Is it true? Can you be assured? Awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to skip my last question for, for time. Um, but as, as we conclude, um, is what's your, what's your hope for readers after they read this book? What, what are you hoping they kind of come away with yeah. either about Luther or just maybe their own faith? Sorry, I was rereading your question. Your, your question actually relates a little bit to it. The, um, so I'm backing up a little bit, but I am a guilty conscience. Mm -hmm. I grew up in American evangelicalism. Um, and it, it prodded my anxiety. And so reading Luther, I think was very effective, mostly because I essentially am a medieval Catholic peasant. I do have the same anxieties. And mm -hmm. most people in American Protestantism do have those same anxieties. Yep. Do I have to earn forgiveness? And so what's, what Luther does is something that you have to do in every generation. He comes back to be personal and to be concrete. We don't go to abstract 
idea. Uh, the, so this is again a Hal Sinkbar quote. Hal says, um, God didn't so love the world that he sent an idea. God so loved the world that he sent his son. So that we don't have to understand who Jesus is. And, you know, we have this relationship with him. This isn't something to just be cognitively drowned. Um, it's an experience to be had. And so that's, to me, the genius of Luther is that he points us back to the joy of knowing Jesus, knowing these concrete, personal things, pulling us away from abstract speculation. And that's what I hope when, when people read the book, I hope that they get more excited about reading their Bible. Mm -hmm. that they feel equipped to read their Bible because the rule of faith, the catechism is so wieldy. It's so small pivots. You can move it really easily, really nicely. You can use it with small children, mm -hmm. you can use it with adults, you can mm -hmm. use it with smart people, with dumb people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just a thing that kind of sets the table. And it, um, we didn't get into any of this, but the rule of faith also claims all tools. Mm -hmm. So it can take German higher criticism. It mm -hmm. can put it to death and bring it back to life and make it useful. Mm -hmm. You see Luther do all sorts of like really interesting critical things. Yeah. Um, with the text where he's repointing the Hebrew. Yep. Uh, he didn't see the points as inspired. No. Um, but some of the reform did, but he didn't. Yeah. There's a great article uh, about the reform <laughs> rocks. You get the second Helvetic Confession making some, some funny things about the, uh, the pointing. You're like, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> Yeah, Luther didn't trust the pointing so much, but yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, I that's really if there's a, one thing that comes from the book, it's just that people are more excited about their Bible and they feel prepared. They can do it. They don't need they. You know, you can do it together, but they don't have to go find some expert. Uh, yeah. By God's word and by God's spirit, they are the expert. <laughs> they're not the master; they're the servant. Um, and then I do hope that people get more excited about about luther and that they're interested in reading him and not just the great 1520 tracks yep um, and i think it does revise the way that you read luther it does yeah most people when they read those 1520 tracks they don't see the catechism no and after this project i you know i'm prodding around it's like it's everywhere it's all over it mm -hmm. so it's just something that once your eyes are open to you see he's doing something just very basic and simple but yeah, better Bible reading. I'm just Bible reading. That's all, that's all I hope for anyone is First Timothy four five, that God's word and prayer makes everything whole. Hmm. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you, Doctor Doctor Haynes, for coming on to talk about your work with Luther to talk about this book that you just that's coming out. Um, by the time that this episode comes out, it'll have just come out. It'll be a couple days old. Um, hmm. People have this in their hands and um, read read about a Luther. I think. Yeah, some people would be not surprised about necessarily, but just it's kind of new to them. I think we hear him as justification by faith, and which is all true and good, but um, he's so much more than that. He kind of grounds how he reads the the Bible on this. So it's thank you for for coming on, talking about it, and introducing some stuff some stuff to our listeners and to I'm sure to your readers too. Yeah, thank you for letting me. Usually, um, <laughs> usually it's people that I know that have to put up with it, and <laughs> <laughs> somebody that you don't know ask you to do it. Yeah, you'll have a lot of people, yeah, in this, yeah, this in the areas like, oh, interesting. This is I'm I'm hoping people, yeah, pick up this book and and read it, read a little Luther for the probably the first time. Um and yeah, then, yeah read more Luther and how ha have him help you read your Bible a little bit better. Um and more Christ focused than just moralistic. But yeah, thanks for coming on. Yeah.
Thank you, guys. Thank you. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for listening to the episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And if you go to our show notes, as a reminder, there is a link to Patreon, and you can find out how to become a bridge builder. Yeah, we've got five different support levels, and the levels go from uh, just a, a $5 donation to help keep the lights on and, and get some equipment all the way up to you guys get to be part of our decision-making process for episodes, for content, for authors, for guests, whoever it may be. And you guys get consistent conversations, maybe even since our episodes, the second that we record them, instead of having to wait for episodes to come out. So look at that, see what you want to do. As part of that, we have a goal to get about $1,000 a month that's to cover some costs, get some new equipment, and just hire some people as well. And also, if you guys can rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on any one of your podcasting platforms, this is the number one way, besides word of mouth, that word gets out about what we're doing. So we hope to see you guys next week.